peace, peace, and welcome. This is uh, another exciting and dynamic guest we have on today's Cook on Quarantine podcast. Um, Mr. Joe Truss is an education leader in San Francisco at one of our incredible middle schools. Um, he also has the most popping Twitter of any educator in the city of San Francisco. <laughs> uh, he's a speaker truth to power um, in the system, online, in the world, uh, being a support around issues of, of, uh, of equity and education, building communities around advancing a social justice agenda for the benefit of marginalized young people, and um, taking bumps along the way, learning along the way, growing along the way. And so I'm glad to have him on the day. Ooh, see why I'm rapping right now. You saw that? <laughs> so we can kind of like, we can kind of get into a story. And thank you for doing this, Mr. Trust. Hey, man, no doubt. Um, it's uh, my pleasure. Um, it's always nice to just chop it up a little bit. And, you know, I feel like a lot of times uh, we don't get really get to talk with people from our same place, you know, but this, you know, talking about stories and it's, you could tell different stories when people are natives to the area, born and raised in the area. So for me, that's, that's, a, that's beautiful. And, you know, our worlds, we've kind of seen that our, our, our lives overlap in lots of ways, you know, and that's always fun too, man. So yeah, my, um, the overlapping way. So I have a, I have a younger cousin that was a student <laughs> that's at, right. I forgot about that one. <laughs> at, uh, um, Joe's school while he was principal. Uh, Damani, he's now in high school. So much to love about young Damani. <laughs> so much to love. It's uh, a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. His father is actually like one of my closest friends. His father is my, my first cousin. We Obviously, we grew up in the city. Damani grew up in the city. Um, where'd you grow up exactly? I'm on a corner of Turk and Leavenworth. In the oh, okay. Okay. You grew up names, in- names streets that people know them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you grew up in the TL. Yeah, man. Born and raised. You know, my, I pretty much lived there until I went to college, you know, 18 long years, you know, living there and, you know, moved only once, you know, from a, from Leavenworth to Turk Street. So I was still on the corner of Turk and Leavenworth. Uh, but yeah, man. That's, um, that's an interesting neighborhood. Sure is. I'm sure. Once again, like you know the area, you know, you know. Yeah. Um, what I always like to tell folks who aren't from the from the from the city is, it's the Hamster Dam, you know, of San Francisco, you know, or one of them at least, you know. Um, yeah, it was crazy, man. It was the '80s. Born in '81, came up when it was, uh, you know, that was happening all across the country, right, in cities and inner cities and red light districts everywhere, right. Um, but you know, I saw my version of it in. And the Tenderloin, you know, a four or five block radius where anything could happen at any moment, you know, with no rules for the most part. Yeah. Um, I actually had no idea that you grew up in the Tenderloin. No and, uh, I want to. So just for some reference sake, yeah, the Tenderloin um, is sort of central San Francisco, right above Market Street. Some would say like the heart of the city, center of the city and has a long history of uh, like various activities that are uh, very self-destructive and uh, also has a lot of families right, right. so this we when someone from here says the tenderloin it's like a lot of context associated with that one of the at Amsterdam people who who haven't watched the wire <laughs> <laughs> is this area is he's referred to like the show called the wire where they where they legalize drugs and prostitution and and you know this aspect of the show and so um people don't know that there's a lot of kids that live there 
And so I was recently walking through it because it's like one of the last places in the city where it's not as expensive to stay. Right. And it's funny. So funny story. That's when I asked my mom how she ended up there. She was like, that was the cheapest place to live and we didn't have any money. So that's where we that's where we ended up. You know, mm-hmm. I was looking at apartments and I was like, the, the places online, they look they look OK. It looked nice. <laughs> so I was like, OK, I'm going to I'm going to check it out. I'm going to like I'm going to just like walk the neighborhood. And then um, it, it, it kind of it's kind of a trip around my sensibilities. I, I, I grew up poor, but walking through the Tenderloin was like very jarring. It's, it's, yeah. it's, not, it's another place, man. I mean, like, you know, as a kid, when you're little, when I was little, I didn't know any different when I was real small. So it was just like, that's just, that was just it. That was life. And that's where we lived. So the, the Tenderloin has tons of apartment buildings, right? I don't, there's no, I don't remember no homes there. Not just apartment buildings, but also day to day and week to week and month to month hotels. They have all kind of folks that stay there for various reasons, right? Um, but like in the apartments where I lived, there's there's drug dealing, and then there's like drug dealing out your gate, twenty four seven that you walk by every day, right? One gate to walk through, right? Um, and then all along the neighborhood. And what I always explain to folks who are not from the Tenderloin, it's a neighbor. It's one of the only places I've ever heard of that you don't have to live in the neighborhood to be able to to slang there. It's a strange thing. You know, and there there were some people who lived there who did, but like people could come from other places and there was like territory on certain blocks, but they weren't from there and they didn't live there. And that's like the wildest concept, right? Because everything I've learned outside of that is uh, people do stuff where they live for the most part, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, people selling drugs out, out my gate, you know, you when you can find drugs accidentally, that says something, you know what I mean? As a kid, right? You know, when prostitution, uh, gangs drugs crime death is just re- it was just regular it was just regular you know it wasn't that out of the ordinary it wasn't until i met people later on and realized that that wasn't their regular life that i realized it was out of the ordinary to other people at least and, and it wasn't really until i started getting into middle school and high school when i started being able to see the juxtaposition between my day-to-day and other people's day-to-day and I would go visit. I remember I had this crazy experience when I was in high school. I was going to Lowell at the time, um, a place that shouldn't exist anymore, but still does. Uh-oh. Uh, but <laughs> uh, but I was that, going uh... there at the time. <laughs> and um, I remember, you know, I was working on some pro- project, some, some, some assignment with some kid in my class, right? And when I was at his house, and I remember walking around his house. It's probably 10th grade or something. And he's giving me a tour. And he's like, oh, this here and this here. And we walked past the room. And he was like, and I look in the room and it's just empty, right? It's like a bed. And now I understand that's a guest room, right? <laughs> right? And I was like, and, and at the time I was like, I was like, who lives in here? I was like, who's in here? He's like, oh, that's a guest room. And I was just like, I was like, wait, you got open rooms? <laughs> like, you got open rooms? Like, what you mean you got open rooms? Like, what you mean nobody lives in this room? Right? right? Um, and then it was like, oh, it's another one of them. Oh, it's another one? Oh, and you know, for me, I was like, I was like, okay, like something ain't right here, you know, like because for me, and then I go home, right, and you know, I was, I, w- I live in a studio apartment, just me and my mom, single parent. I'm home. Dad died to alcoholism when I was five. That was my story. My friends and all my neighbor na- in my neighborhood and in my apartments, apartment buildings that I lived in, they had six, seven kids. Some had two or three, but they had two plus, five plus kids in one studio maybe in one bedroom right so for me this concept that like there was that much space not to mention the safety and the quiet and the solitude and all that kind of stuff with being in other neighborhoods across the city as i started moving more let alone when i got to college right and really started seeing what the world was like i didn't know 
until I knew. And then for me, that was when I was like, okay, well, what's up with this? And what, 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 what are we doing about this? Right. Um, so, it, you know, it's a strange place to grow up and to be a kid, man. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff I could have got into that I chose not to, you know, but I felt like everybody I knew did not choose to everybody I knew chose to get in it. And, uh, Felt everyone else I grew up with felt like they had to get into it. You know what I mean? Like that's how it just felt like. And like for some reason I felt like I didn't have to and I did it. But like I didn't know anybody who went to college when I was a kid. Maybe there was somebody in the after school program, maybe, right? But that wasn't until about middle school, right? But like no, but I didn't know anybody in the neighborhood who went to college. And like me, maybe one other girl that I know were like school kids. We knew, right? And people knew, right? At a certain age, people were trying to jump me into gangs and all that kind of stuff for a certain age. And at a certain point, they were like, oh, no, Joe's going to school. That's what Joe's doing. And then I was like, don't fuck with him. You know what I mean? That's just what it was. You know, like, you know, my, my mom luckily had good relationships with everybody, and whatever. Like, people didn't, people didn't fuck with me, which was good, you know, because, like, I mean, my friends were selling drugs in middle school already, already you know, operations, you know, and you watch, get to the wire. That's what I love about that show. Cause they break that shit down. Right. You got the corner boys, right. That shit is real life. Right. So like my friends were already in the hierarchy of, of the business, right. At a young age. Right. And at a certain age, they're like, Oh no, Joe goes to school, leave him alone. And that was it. Nobody fucked with me anymore. There was no problems with that. You know, I never had any problems because we just, we knew everybody and that was just what it was. Right. But you know, then you meet other people and they're just like, oh, no, everybody goes to college here. You know, everybody, my kid was supposed to expect to go to college. It was already paid for. They already got a down payment on a home, like all that kind of shit, you know, like, but I didn't really discover all that until I got older and, and you know, met folks that have very different lives, you know. Mm-hmm. Did you go to undergrad? Uh, I went to Berkeley. Um, and even that in itself, right? Like, I mean, when I got there, I realized like, oh, poor people don't go to college. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I see that statistically, just statistically, right? I mean, uh-huh. they may go to JCs, they may junior to transfer in, but that's still a, such a small uh, piece of the people who are really moving through college for the most part and finishing a four-year degree, right? So like when I saw that, like even, you know, and I fell into the black community there, they weren't poor folks, not at Berkeley at least, right? They, they came from some money, you know? So once again, I was kind of like still like coming from this low class, low income background that uh, is, you know, it's different, right? You can be black, Black and poor is different though, you know? Yeah, well, when I was, uh, I went to Thurgood. And uh, so, so we, we, I didn't go to law. I realized so, people do that as I got older. I was like, man, I don't know. Somebody told me I was supposed to go there. Like, I don't know. <laughs> told me to turn uh, the paper in. So I turned the paper in. You know? Yeah, I'm like, uh, I, I mean, we can't, we can't get into that. I want to, I want to, I want to kind of stick on your journey for a second. But yeah, but, but the whole thing about Berkeley, right? So like, it was everybody's dream at Thurgood to go to Berkeley and everybody's an exaggeration, but it was, um, you know, Thurgood was a, it had, it had a college going culture. And at the, you know, at the time it was like very much the emphasis. Right. And, um, and I got like three different four ride scholarships to Berkeley. Right. And my, and everyone was like, you got to go to Berkeley. And because everyone wanted me to go, like I didn't want to go. (laughs) <laughs> and, and I went there with the, the whole pre-frost weekend. There was like a pretty strong black presence. Mm-hmm. Not strong as, you know, there were, there were, there were, there was a good squad of people there that were like connected, you know? You could find, um, you could find black people. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you could find them. <laughs> you said, say it again? Hold on, say it. You said, you could find? 
you can find them. You know what I mean? Oh, like, you can go to school where you can't find them. You know right, what I mean? Like, right, like yeah. yeah, there was a presence. I mean, sure. yeah, yeah. And so, um, but that sounds like, I mean, so you, you have this education experience alongside this, this neighborhood experience uh, mm-hmm. where you sort of uh, found yourself at these prestigious elite institutions. And um, you have this context of like, you know, a neighborhood that is is very rough. Not only rough with like people may not having much, but you see a lot of people suffering on the street. Like the level yeah. of human suffering outside in the tenderloin yeah. is very drastic, you know? Um, and so how how is that sitting with you? Do you feel connected and, and a part of these elite communities? Do you feel like you shouldn't be there? Like what what's going on through your mind as you're Yeah, I mean there's I mean I mean, there's definitely the imposter syndrome, right? And the stereotype threat, most definitely, right? I mean, that's, you can have that just for class, right? Right, it'd be different. It could, that could be just for class if it was all black, right? Or all brown, right? But for me, it was it was coupled both class and race, right? Because I'm at schools where the majority of folks are white and Asian, both in high school, shit, I mean, both in middle school at Francisco, high school at Lowell, and then college at, at Berkeley, same thing, white and Asian for the most part. And I'm in the classes, right? Someone decided that I was gifted and other kids were not gifted. Another thing that, you know, is an archaic classist, elitist, um, white supremacist concept, right, that we still hold. Somebody decided I was gifted. So that means now, even, even if there were brown kids in the school, I wasn't with them. I was in the classes with the other gifted kids that happen to also be Asian and white. Um, so yeah, definitely that imposter syndrome, huge, right. Of feeling like I don't belong. Of course. I mean, definitely, but I had to still reckon right with what's going on with where I'm from and what's going on with everybody else. Right. And for me, like, we know, when you're young, you're just like trying to get away and trying to escape and trying to be yourself and try to assert your individuality and grow up and all that stuff. And if I knew that it was unsafe in my neighborhood, I wanted to be in a place that was safe at a minimum, right. A place that I didn't have to hear gunshots and sirens and see dead people and you know i mean like i didn't i I didn't i don't really wish that on anybody there's nothing glamorous about that you know i had to reckon with why that was going on so especially when i got to college that's how when when i when i started to learn more about my history and also just the social political historical context then i started to understand okay that's i understand this is the inner city right this is the ghetto right these are um, government um, plans right? This is redlining, right? This is uh, systemic oppression, systemic racism, and systemic classism, right? And then I understood it, and I was like, okay, well, that's what it is. Which the question now is, what am I actually going to do about it, right? And other people, you know, I, I was around a bunch of people in, in, in college where they had a similar experience, but it was like, no, I'm getting money, period. Which I, you know, I understand, right? Because when I was young, that's, you understand that people with money try to pretend like money is not everything, you don't hear poor people say, nah, you know, I'm cool being broke. You don't hear that. Right? We recognize that there's a certain amount of funds that you need for basic life, right? Let alone happiness and, and security. Um, so when even when I was younger, like I was like, I just gotta make a lot of money. I happen to love science too. So I was I was interested in uh, medicine, hands down. I was like pre-med, you name it. I took all the fucking classes, MCAT, pre-med class, you know. OCHEM, all that shit, calculus. And then I was in undergrad right around the time when I was coming to my own awakening of what was going on, right? And I was like, well, um, if I could see things that, if I could see that it's all messed up and, and, and it's racist and it's classist, and I now see these models of people throughout history who have tried to do something about that, whether that was 
the Black Panther Party, right? Or um, SNCC, right? Or whoever else you want to use as models or Malcolm. For me, like those are some of my models. The question now was, what am I going to do about what I know, right? Then that led me to education. I happened to like be in some programs and some summer programs where I was seeing some Afro, an Afrocentric approach to education, right? I mean, this is before we called it culturally relevant, but Afrocentric education has always been cultural relevancy for Black people, right? So seeing that and having my political awakening and then um, reconciling that with my upbringing and everything else I was seeing and this, this, this craziness of being at a, a school like Berkeley, I had to do something, right? And for me, that was education. That was it. So hands down, I'm going to be a teacher and I'm going to figure out how I'm going to go start a revolution within the schools, right? Within these kids, kids' minds so that more kids are having an experience that they should be having, right? Because the real question was, why did I have success, but the rest of my kids didn't? Rest of rest of rest of the kids I grew up with didn't, right? That's the thing you have to reconcile with, right? What would it take for them to have that success, right? Because they should, they deserve it, just because they're poor and they're brown. And I grew up with like Southeast Asian kids, so like immigrants from Cambodia and Vietnam, um, Mexico, El Salvador. What would it take for them to have the same outcomes, right? That's the question, right? And for me, I've been chasing that ever since, whether I've been a teacher, now a leader, whatever, right? I mean, that's a systemic kind of change, right? It's actually really interesting because um, uh, I just recorded a podcast with a with a with a gentleman named uh, Clarence Otis, who was the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. He grew up in Watts, <clears throat> um, and he went to school with the founders of the Bloods and the Crips. They all went to school together, mm-hmm. and um, he credits the emphasis of black nationalism for his success in corporate America, which is, which was kind of like, I was like shocked, you know, <laughs> Cause like, cause I can see a connection though. If you flip it the right way, but that's deep. Yeah. no, nah, it makes, it makes perfect sense. He taught, I mean, um, cause you just mentioned Afrocentric and, uh, and you know, I've been in conversation about putting together a curriculum approach that specifically is focused on, <clears throat> uh, uh, you know, the black studies, right? And 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 having an historical lens that's rooted in what we know to be the truth around the innovations that came out of Africa, which is which mm-hmm. are which are largely credited within like Western society, you know, like that that whole like that knowledge swap, that knowledge, you know, um that that theft. lot where things originally <laughs> that, right? that knowledge, the knowledge theft, right? Of Pythagoras being in in, in exactly. I mean, let's let's get it, you know. I mean exactly, right? exactly. Exactly. And so, um, yeah, but like it was, it was just, it was heavy because, uh, because I mean, it wasn't like he really talked about an awakening. It was like, oh, we, we were, we were, um, we were educated on how we got to be in this place and because, and and the nature of oppression and, and why we're here. And, and then we were told the truth about who we were. And because of that, I felt comfortable excelling in life. You know what I'm saying? It was just like, mm-hmm. damn, like, okay. Mm-hmm. And then, but then like with the inverse of it, right? Cause you know, he, he ran a, he ran a, he was the head of a company that, you know, had an international presence and, and the Bloods and the Crips have an international presence. <laughs> They're international organizations, like all in the same neighborhood at the same time mm-hmm. being taught by the Black Panthers. Cause the Black Panthers went down to LA and they had a big presence there. Right. When I hear mm-hmm. you talking about, um, that shift driving you in the schools and what we see happening in our schools around achievement as it relates to black students. Yeah. It's like, it's one of, one, of the, one of my major frustrations and being on the board of education and there are, there are many to pick from, right? <laughs> but, uh, but is that 
everything that we get caught up in championing is in moving achievement in the ways that we traditionally measure it. Or like, yeah. you know, what, what does it mean? Like, what is, like, what type of, what level of competency do we want our children to have? And then, and then how is it that people are being celebrated as like gifted leaders and these student outcomes aren't changing? You know, mm-hmm. like, what, what do you, what's your take on that? Why, why we have not shifted achievement yet? More so, yeah, that, but also like this duality. It's like, you know, we elevate individual success. Like we have a black student, we have a black superintendent that grew up in the city. I'm a right. black man that grew up in the city. I'm on the board of education. Like we can right. like, we'll, we'll do this individual thing and, and say like progress is happening. But right. then for the collective whole, um, things aren't moving in terms of student achievement. Or we'll right. do something like say, you know, we're going to introduce restorative practices. We're going to uh, introduce computer science. We're going to like whatever the, whatever the thing is. Mm-hmm. And then we'll tout these introductions, but right. then achievement isn't changing. Right. You know? So right. just, so my, I'm asking you to comment on, I'm, I'm calling, I'm calling bullshit on everything. Right. Like unless it's, it, unless it's driving student achievement is bullshit. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm asking you to respond to that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, it, if we can't make it better, it is bullshit, right? I mean, that's, I mean, that's it, right? I mean, the proof is in the outcomes. That's it. I mean, we can't, there's no, there's no way we can debate what the numbers say, right? Now we can, we can debate that some of the measurements are racist, right? Or biased. And some of them, they are, some of them are not a hundred percent of it and not a hundred percent of, of uh, what we measure. Right. Um, But that, that is true. Right. Um, What it comes down to, you know, a lot of my, my vision and my educational philosophy is that, and especially my, as I become a leader is we can't take this wraparound approach to solutions, right? Cause this idea that we're uh, uh, founded and designed to be sorting mechanisms, right? For um, white folks for the most part, right? In an assimilation factory, right? To prepare folks for the factory work. If we, if we start there and accept that and before that, um, you know, uh, uh, indigenous re-education programs and assimilation and accept that that's a part of it, right? Then we understand that you you insert any um, group, whether that's a Latinx group or a Black group or any other group into that situation, they're going to have the same result, right? But now the interesting thing about Black folk is that we're a very resistant and prideful p- people, right? And we we're we're very good at calling bullshit on lots of things because we have this institutional memory and this generational knowledge of knowing that many of our systems are institutionally racist, right? You can't really meet a, a, a parent that probably has not imparted that wisdom on their children, right? Because to, to tell your kids that it's set up for you, is that's bullshit. And so we know that, we know better than that, right? You know, we Black folks tend to be the canaries in the coal mine it, with education, right? We're the ones that are dying figuratively and literally, right? It's not designed for us. It's not designed for Black students. That's one, right? Now, when we take this approach to doing something about it, we take that wraparound approach, though, right? Mm -hmm. So this idea that I'm not going to change the box. I'm just going to give you a couple other things outside of the box where you're not really filling the box that much. You got to get back in the box, (laughs) Right. Or you are square, you're a round peg 
and we try to get you in this square hole, right? I'm gonna kind of give you, you know, the wraparound stuff is I'm gonna give you some Vaseline, just try to massage you in there. I'm gonna give you a pep talk, but you still gotta fit your ass through that hole, even though you're not the right size, right? And that that experience of knowing that you're not the right size, and they're not gonna change that size, they're not gonna change the shape for you, right? That's the experience of being a black person in education and some other experiences too, right? But this, this idea that like, no, the curriculum is not going to be designed for you. The pedagogy is not going to be designed for you. The systems are not going to be designed for you. But when you want to get back in the box, we can get down, right? I mean, that's the experience, right? And like most folks who make it through, unless they were so, somehow lucky to go through an Afrocentric school or to be in a really strong household that somehow did some wraparound shit outside of that, unless you learned your history outside of that right or they went to a charter school that happened to be an afrocentric school that just happened to have really whatever that's the exception right the rule though is if you made it through at some point you have to 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 reconcile the fact that you needed to let go some of yourself to get through and then you have to try to like get it back some way right you spend your whole life trying to get it back right that's the process of assimilation right now that's because it's set up that way right so we see the outcomes and outcomes are the outcomes right what we do about that is we change how it's set up. That's to say that we change our pedagogy, right? We change our curriculum, right? I mean, people, why, why, why have people been pushing an Afrocentric curriculum or African-American studies curriculum for so long? Because we know we need that shit. We know that that stuff is this thing that unlocks you, that feeds your soul, that teaches you your history, that builds you up, right? It's nice that now in the last like 10 to 20 years, maybe 30, depending on who you read, people have been talking about culturally responsive teaching. And a lot of Black educators have been leading that, right? Whether that's Geneva Gay, right? Lassen Billings, Zaretta Hammond, like people have kind of championing this stuff recently, but before you couldn't really even touch that before, right? But that's starting to answer this question of how do we actually change how we do it, right? The curriculum, the pedagogy, the relationships, right? All of that kind of stuff, right? So yeah, I mean, you can understand why parents show up or kids show up and they call it bullshit because their experience is bullshit. I mean, it w- I mean, now they would actually have to lie to themselves to say that it's something else. And we get trained in how to do that too. And the folks of us who make it through learn how to do that. And once again, at some point you have to reconcile with who you really are and that double consciousness, all that kind of bullshit. You have to dig through all that kind of stuff to dig yourself out of that piece if you ever do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now this piece of what we do about that is we design for black students, right? I mean, you could also design for Latinx students. It's, it's gonna be some similar stuff. It's not gonna be the same stuff, right? Um, but that, I mean, everything needs to change. But the hard part about that is the people doing the designing and the people delivering the design, right, have been assimilated into the same system, right? They've been drinking the same water. They've been breathing the same air, right? Um, and that gets into like the mindset shift, the skill shift. We all went to schools. I went to a school that was not designed for black students or poor students, right? So my default is going to be that when I close my eyes and I'm trying to see if I can walk through my house with the eyes closed and I know where I'm kind of going. When I'm in that kind of mode, what I'm going to go back to? The shit that I was trained to do that I experienced for 18 years, right? It, it takes uh, some serious reorganization, right? Um, but, you know, that's the, that is the work, you know, if we really want to do it. Yeah, there's a lot there that you that you brought up and multiple avenues we can go down. I do want to um, talk a little bit about how you're bringing people into that approach through, because uh, you you know it's not like you have enough work to do. <laughs> you run a school, you got a family, 
but you've also started to uh, create these spaces and uh, be a voice on these issues, create these spaces to help people advance their mm -hmm. approach to educating. Um, so touch a little on that, like the, the consulting, the training work you're doing. I know you just had something happen that was really huge. Yeah. So, um, you know, I feel like a good, you know, touch point or, you know, um, uh, indicator of that is this, this weekend that we just finished up, um, June 27th to 28th, uh, I had a training. Um, uh, the title of the training is Dismantling White Supremacy Culture in Schools. Um, and the, the subtitle is, you know, how do we create anti-racist schooling, right? Education, that's the idea. This weekend, we had almost a thousand people mm. locked in for uh, four and a half days on Saturday, four and a half hours on Sunday, digging into that topic, right? Mm. Um, we ended up having 1,600 people register and almost a thousand people show up and we actually had, we actually broke zoom and I had to close it up and turn people away and open up another session in mm -hmm. three weeks just to fit, just to serve folks who are interested and also just kind of keep the party going. I mean, what the beautiful part of that is, you know, like it's hard more in these systems and these institutions, we feel like we can't really be that um, direct. We can't talk about white supremacy. We can't talk about racial hierarchy. We can't talk about systemic racism. We talk about diversity. We talk about equity. We talk about inclusion. We can talk about cultural competence, right? Um, so the fact that we had people locked into that conversation to figure out how is this showing up in schools, but really, really, the real part is it's not in schools, it's in us. We just happen to be operating the machine, right? I mean, that's the real part, right? I mean, and that's what I love that I try to create that space where people, they go, they walk in thinking they were thinking about a system and they walk out realizing, oh shit, we're the system, right? And we're the district, right? Uh, and there's some parts of the machine need to move too, but ultimately everybody's at some piece of the machine, right? Um, so that being said, the purpose of all that is trying to get people to unpack uh, the, the routines and the behaviors and the beliefs that we've been spoon-fed and assimilated to believe. Generally, white supremacy, right? Racial hierarchy, right? That places whiteness at the top and blackness and indigenous at the bottom. Um, then once you accept that, then you can say, well, how does that show up everywhere? And which gets back into the conversation we just had, right? It's in the curriculum, it's in the pedagogy, it's in the relationships, it's in the rules, right? It's in the systems, it's in what determines which school you can go to and which school you can't go to, right? The idea that, you know, we have a, a, a school assignment system that is built on anti-blackness, right? That says that you can go anywhere you want to go if you want to leave your neighborhood, right? That concept, right, is white supremacy, right? Talk about it. Let's be real, you know. Talk about um, it. <laughs> let's be real, you know. Um, not. I mean, it, I mean, no. it. Well, I just, <laughs> <laughs> nah, because because of the, with the um, uh, Stokey Carmichael had a a quote: "Integration is a subterfuge for white supremacy." Come on now, I mean, come on, because I mean, we we understand the civil rights movement. They were never asking for integration in the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. They were asking for equality maybe, right? Access to the resources, but we don't want, why we gotta leave our neighborhood? Why we gotta leave our city? Why mm -hmm. we gotta fire all our teachers? Just give us the new books or give us the money to buy our own books, right? It got, right, it got mm -hmm. sidelined, right? And, and watered down to say it was about integration, right? Cause you're right, cause that serves white supremacy, right? To say mm -hmm. that, oh no, it's actually better if you go to this other school, right? And we've been using yeah. the same concept of, if you surround, surround brown students with white students, they will get better. Right. right? But that's yeah. bullshit. Yeah, um, Juneteenth is too. You said what? I said so is Juneteenth. <laughs> Depending on how you how you think about it, yeah, yeah, you got to break that shit down. Yeah, um, but 
Yeah, because I was going in on that. Because at first I was like, oh, Juneteenth, cool. Because, you know, I grew up going to the fair in, in the city we we have. And um, and I was thinking about it like, hold on, like we really celebrating white people giving us freedom. Like we was free before Hello. we got here. Like why is, Hello. You know, when we going to start exercising liberation? You know what I'm saying? Like what is what what, what does that look like? And 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 basing it in the true knowledge of our history, and um, and you brought up like Afrocentric schools, right? And um, I was talking to a sister; she's on the school board in Newark, and we did a podcast together. She went to this school called the Chad School, and um, she said, also said like it was a school that it was a private school uh, based in Newark, who in Newark has a long history of black militancy, you know, mm-hmm. itself, mm-hmm. and and. And one of the questions, and I heard about her experience and I see how she presents herself and it's like, it's like beautiful and affirming and like, you know, all this other stuff that I want to see. I, I want everyone to sort of walk around and carry themselves with when, when somebody has that is is noticeable. And it's just like one of the overriding things that I, that I thought about before I ran and been, since I've been on this board and you, you brought up a lot of this stuff, like, you know. It's in us. You brought that up. But one of the questions that I stay with is like, what school can I tell a black family? Like, we're going to do right by your child. You know, what school can I say in confidence? Why would a, why should a black family entrust their child with our system, given what it's doing? You know what I'm saying? So, like, based on everything you laid out, well, why, why are you staying? Like, why I mean, you- because... I mean, yeah, I mean, because it has to change. And it ain't changing if we're not doing nothing. I mean, that's period, right? Um, now, the, the resistance is strong, right? And the, 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 the system is self-replicating and self-correcting, right? Because we, we've all been entrenched in white supremacy and we hold a piece of the machine, right? Um, so that's, that's a given, right? Um, but because, you know, it really comes down to like, we all got some privilege, right? I mean, if I made it this far and I got here and I got some degrees and some money in my pocket and I got a job, like I have some privilege. I got some skin in that game. Maybe not as much as some other folks, right? But I have some privilege and it, it, it is, it's incumbent upon me to do something about it with, what, with whatever piece I can kind of get busy with, right? Whether that, whatever position I might have or whatever role I might have, right? Um, because that's where the children are, right? I mean, you can say all this stuff like, yeah, that's right, but I can I can do more work if I just pop out of here and find my, find my own school and I pick the kids and I pick the teachers. That's cool. That's cool for 300 kids, right? But the masses, they are in public schools, right? And they are getting whatever they are given, right? And it, it really is on us to give them something better, right, that, that they actually deserve, right? It's hard as hell, right? It's tiring as hell. It's martyr work, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, it is soul, it is soul crushing work, but also like you, when you know that you're a part of something bigger, you gotta tap into that. I mean, I mean, fuck that. I mean, if if my hardest work is dealing with white resistance in a meeting, that's nothing compared to what some of the people that were that were the shoulders that we're resting on, right? Our ancestors, it's nothing, right? I mean, we put it in that context. We don't always put it in that context. We put it in the context of like, man, I just don't want to be in here right now because I don't want to have this conversation with this person. I don't want to face this resistance, whatever, right? But People have been through some stuff that's much harder than this, right? For me, mm-hmm. you know, my mom, who is white, she's not a black person. She scrubbed tubs and folded laundry and worked grueling hours as a maid for 50 years. My job is fucking easy compared to hers. Let's be real, right? Mm-hmm. Right? If all I got to do is figure out 
how I can use my privilege to try to motivate and support folks to do that, to do the right things for the kids. It ain't easy, but that's that's easy work compared to doing some other things that I could be doing, right? And harder jobs that people had. And people didn't have that option. They didn't have no option of having a black principal before a certain time, right? Um, they didn't yeah. have that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think I think my thinking is less so about like um, the work being difficult as opposed to actually achieving the ideal in a separate space, you know, because with the... Unless we all leave, we all leaving. We ain't all leaving, though. Unless we all leave, that's different, right? I mean, you get to this piece of like, oh, where the southern states are going to secede and we're going to have new Africa. That's different, right? Okay, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I'm not. We we all we all ain't gotta leave. <laughs> we all ain't gotta leave. But 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 because you said white resistance, and I'm more talk, and you know, and you're also talking about white supremacy and and and, and systemic. Talking about white white resistance could mean um, colleagues. It could also mean uh, white the white supremacist system that organ that education is organized around white resistance of like what it's like to to hire your own personnel. Like the systemic challenges around that, the systemic challenges right, right. of you know, how much you can actually accomplish within the allotted school minutes, the systemic challenges of uh, transportation. Like there are like all these like um, regulations, compliance um, issues that get in the way of progress. Right? It's like it's hard to actually achieve what we're looking to achieve within. It's not possible to within the education system as. But, but, um, but I'll say this right. But if everyone was aligned with that piece of the machine that they're actually holding or that piece of policy they're writing or rewriting or that resolution they're writing or or that whatever, right? If those folks are aligned to some core stuff that's actually that places uh, racial justice and racial equality at the center of it, right? At the deep level, then they're going to make the right call, right? Mm-hmm. But that's that's deeper work, right? That's much longer term work, right? Um People have, and, and and if we can, and if there's stuff that we can't get around, then we'll be subversive, right? But you're only subversive when you're tapped into something much deeper, right? And that's the place that people need to get to, right? To the point where, like, there's somebody else who has more privilege, privilege than what we have, and they can get more active than how we're getting active, right? We need them on board too, right? Um, but, I mean, that's if we're trying to do whole system kind of change, right? Like, we, we haven't seen it, but if we have enough people doing it, they're going to figure that shit out. Right. Unless they accept the idea that it's not possible. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's possible. Yeah. And I feel like we're um, I, I appreciate this conversation. I don't know if, if we're getting too into the weeds <laughs> no, for people, but um, it's all good, man. <laughs> I want to, uh, you know, so so you, you did the training. Um, you had a great showing in terms of people that were either hungry for this information or hungry for this community. What's what's next on that piece? You know, well, you know, what I try to create in that space is. A, a learning space for folks to kind of come to their own conclusions with some stuff and also just have folks be charged up to go back and do something, do, do more, do something, but, but get, get aligned a little bit. So people actually come in some teams, which is dope, right? So like people came, some people came solo. Some people came as deep as like 25 deep to a training, like their whole school came half the whole school. Right. Mm-hmm. We had like 72 people come from Amherst, Massachusetts, right. Mm-hmm. Together. Right. So that, the act of them coming to something and going back, they go, they're going to get active 
much more than they could before, right? So, and that's on them, right? I'm not everywhere. I'm, I go back to my school, right? Right now, and I try to get active there, right? But what's next is, so if we're not trying to do white supremacy culture, what are we trying to do, right? I mean, the shorthand for, for me for that is anti-racism. You can call it social justice. We don't call it different things before, but if we uh, identify what we're not trying to do, it's going to be pretty easy to not end up there, right? Um, so that's next. But I mean, just giving people more support. I mean, what I realized in, in San Francisco is as much as we're in this pseudo liberalism and, and, and kind of fake progressiveness that we have all these kind of debates and problems with, uh, there's some people that are much later to the conversation and much also more stuck in their thinking. They, they don't even think they can even have those conversations, let alone do something about it. Right. Um, so, you know, we continue plugging away. Right. I mean, this thing was much more of a national and, and actually international kind of thing. Um, versus a San Francisco focused thing, right? There's probably only like 10, 15 people from San Francisco, right? But, you know, we had people from Brazil, Denmark, mm-hmm. England, Angola, um, and, you know, uh, but all the states and, and a lot of people from Canada too. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's next is people got to figure it out, man. I, I even say in the train, I was like, I don't got the answers. I was like, I could ask some provocative ass questions and say, what are you going to do, right? Are you sold out already? Or are you really still working for the people? Which people are you working for? I mean, that's people got to come to their own reckoning with that, right? And we 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 face ourselves in the mirror, but we got to know what question we're asking ourselves in the mirror, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Am I doing it? Am I doing enough or not? Right? I mean, that's it, right? And that'll push us to keep working as hard as we can for the people who need it, who can't. They don't even have the privilege to be able to do that work because they're just getting worked on by the system, right? I mean, we're trying to 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 do, you know, to to try to bring folks who've been marginalized to the table as best as we can, right? And, and clear the way so they can be there. Um, that's, that's hard, long-term work, you know, for sure. Yeah, and um, and I appreciate you doing it. Like what, I, I, wanna, I don't wanna, I wanna skip over this. If people are interested in learning more about that, how can they get connected? Um, you can definitely follow my, my stuff on Twitter, or trust, trust Leadership, T-R-U-S-S, Leadership. Um, you can check out my website, Culturally Responsive Leadership com or joetrust.com will get you there um, and a couple couple trainings there's a training coming up on july 18 and 19th i'm doing it again same thing two-day training breaking down white supremacy culture should be about three to five hundred people sign up for that one as well um, and then you know more stuff throughout the year we'll see what's going on and you also are an avid writer yeah there's i do all, a little, all I, your stuff on your, on your website too all your i do some I, I yeah i do some blogging there and I, every now and then i'll write for some other other pieces or some other outlets. Um, but yeah, I try to write about leadership, racial equity in schools. Um, you know, every now and then I just do a, you know, cathartic train of thought <laughs> every now and then just to let myself go and see where that goes. Um, which is why I love Twitter. It's my, one of my favorite places to vent about, uh, the experience of being in, in this system um, uh, and find other people who are trying to vent and connect too. Cause you know, we're not alone, you know, just, we, we're, we're out here. You're, you're, you're a great follow on Twitter. Um, it's, it's like, it's like, so, so <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm laughing like, because I, um, I love how you go in because it because when you talk about a hey, funny, right? <laughs> it's not, but it is, but it is, it is. It's so that's the hard part, right? It's I'm just like, like, get him, Joe, get him, Joe. <laughs> get him. <laughs> I was just on there today, and I, I'm, I'm gonna say it here just because it was hilarious <laughs> and fresh. Is that I was just on there today saying, you know, all those people who said like, "Oh, Joe, like I'm coming to your training, Joe," you know, like, 
especially the white folks, you know, who said like, oh, I'm coming, you know, and like this idea of like the same thing, like, oh, I'm gonna change my background all black. I'm gonna say, put this little Black Lives Matter little, little uh, overlay on my picture, right? Like all that stuff. <laughs> I was just like, all those people who said they were gonna come, but didn't. I was like, we see you, you know, like we uh, see you. Don't think yeah, that we forgot. Yeah. I was like, I didn't forget, you know, like <laughs> we still here, you know, and you yeah. know, when it, when it continues, we're gonna see if you're still tr- trying to do anything re- relative to this work or not. You know, we're gonna judge you based on that. You know what I mean? Because we should, right? We should be assessing ourselves on whether or not we are fighting hard enough for the people who need mm, justice, right? I mean, that's it, right? And we're never off the hook, right? Because if we were if we were marginalized, we would want somebody fighting for us. We'd be asking that question. Because when I was broke, I was wondering why. How did I get broke? Right? Like why why was it okay for me to be broke and not have regular basic ass things in the tenderloin? Like why was somebody not fighting for me? Right? And for me, I just try to embody that with with my my work now of like, so then let me fight, right? However I can, as best I can, so that you know somebody later on is is seeing that. Somebody was fighting a little bit harder, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the fight is definitely inspiring, and there's there's also this fight too, um, around like the personal, right? Like the um, because you, I mean, you talked about it starts within us, and in order to get to a new place of consciousness or to elevate, it requires some discomfort. You know, like we got to like go through our own discomfort or or be presented with uh, deconstruct the lies we've been told. And there is like this one. One of the things that I've gotten into a lot lately, in my way of thinking, has been more so focused around like this: the self improvement piece, mm. and getting my house in order, and wanting uh, my lifestyle to be a testament of um, of like what growth means, you know. And mm. um, and so, like you are, uh, you're actively like you have a family, right? Um, mm. And you're making yourself available to people that want to grow as education leaders or, or work through the stuff as education leaders, um, that must come at the expense of something. Like, what's that, what's that like for you? Like, how are you dealing with all of that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I feel like you're kind of getting on this piece of like the toll, you know, of at least if we're talking about race, right. The toll of doing race work or anti-racist work for people of color. Right. At least that's one piece of what you're saying. Right. Um, I mean, that's real, but I mean, it still comes down to, but if we're not going to do it, who's doing it? And if we're not doing it, not just that some people won't be doing it, but the people who stand up to do it, they may be saying some other, some, some real bogus shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Right. Um, and then for like, you know, different things feed different people, you know, like I'm just not somebody who's just be on the couch, like watching TV. Like I just, not, I may watch some sports and thankfully NBA is on lockdown right now, so I'm not that distracted, right? right, right, right. Um, but still, like, you know, people just have callings for different things, man. And I go through phases for a long time when I was into, I was really into playing basketball when I was younger, then I was really into spoken word, then I was really into hip hop and writing raps, and now I'm really into writing blogs and talking about racial justice, you know what I mean? Like, part of it's just what feeds us, you know, and that feeds that feeds me. Like, I, I just feel like I have to, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm going to find some in-between time to do it, you know, and that may be, I'm going to stay up a little bit later and get a little bit less sleep just because like it does something for me and I'm hoping that it has some sort of impact, right? That's the, that's the hope, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have to prioritize my family for sure, but you know, sometimes like some things are big, man, they're just big and being able like this weekend to convene a thousand people across the fucking world, mm-hmm. 
talking about racial justice, man, come on, man. Where is that? I missed that. I didn't see that. I haven't seen that for years. Where was that? You know, you know, be able to be able to try to help do that and do a little play a little piece of connecting folks to just have people leave and feel like one, I'm not alone. I got some more tools and I'm fired up. Like, man, come on. You, you struck a nerve, you're catching a wave. And, uh, and I think it will continue to feed on itself and, and, and engage more people for the betterment of our children that, that need the, the engagement. So I appreciate you for doing that. Um, since you brought up hip hop, we got to talk about that for a second. <laughs> talk about that for our brother. We can have a show on oops. We can have a show on hip hop. We can have a uh-huh. show on. We can have a lot of shows, brother. Yeah, let's go. What, yeah. you, what, you, what, you, what you want to talk about? Yeah. So I, I, I for for my guests that are hip hop heads, I just got to do a top five when I'm, you know, for my hip hop. Oh, and I'm yeah. I'm such a hip hop fan uh-huh. that I can't even answer that question. Like that's uh-huh. how much I love hip hop. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. ain't no question that doesn't answer don't cook on quarantine. So you're gonna have to do it. No, it just don't, no, don't do it justice, man. I, don't do it justice. Okay, I, I'm gonna tell you with lots of folks I love. Okay. All right. I'm not even gonna do I'm oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I had on two VCs. One was Charles Hudson, brother from the Detroit area. Um, he gave me his top five. Another one was uh Anthony Papalino, who's a white dude, um, gave me his top five. And I didn't have the time to uh, debate with them, with with their top, with their top fives. Okay. And so, okay. Um, and so if you say something that I, I don't respect, I'm gonna challenge you. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay. Well, look, I'm. I'll start here. I'm not gonna name any of the people that people always want to put in their top five. I'm not gonna name those people. Okay. Just because, like, this idea of whether or not Big and Pac are in the top five. That's whatever. You know, that's cool. Whatever. We can do. Everybody didn't debate to spend all this time on it, right? There's a whole lot of artists out there, though. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I kind of get a little bit deeper into the, to the crates and, you know, like I was on Napster, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like finding people out that, that mm-hmm. way, you know, not mm-hmm. just on MTV raps, right. Or big Tigger, Right. <laughs> uh, anyway. So I, I mean, I'll tell you some people I love I'm trying to think of who I go back to all the time. Right? Cause that's the real test really. Right. Mm-hmm. For me, Talib gotta be, um, he's not, he's not on mine, but that's, that's a common answer. Continue. Gotta be. <laughs> I love M, man. I love so much of M's, Eminem stuff, man. Go back to it all the time. Lots of problems, lots of problems in some of the stuff, but I can't, you know, I can't pick and choose everything. Um, Nas, go back to often. You know, I would say I, I wish he had more years of music because he's still new and young, right? But also just another just kind of monster, Kendrick. You know, one of those ones is just like, you. there's more there than you even can hear. And you know, it's going to be more the next time you listen to it. Like, that's the kind of shit that, like, I I, I feel, man, I'm in the, keep it in the same family. Oh, man, I, I'm, I'm, I got to say, like, common and most. I got to keep it together. And, like, there's a, there's a, there's definitely a pattern there, you know, that I know. Because that was when I was coming up. And, uh-huh. right, I mean, some people got the New York pattern, right? Uh-huh. And they can name all uh-huh. these folks, right? Or they got the West Coast pattern or whatever. But, like, we talk about just people that speaks to the soul. Uh-huh that you learn from because we want to talk about afro afrocentricity and learn some stuff when i can hear a nas rhyme and know that he mm-hmm. said i i've advanced certain come on now like come on uh-huh. come uh-huh. on right uh-huh come yeah. on yeah i found that too i found like where where my what i love about hip-hop what i what i i don't know if uh, people necessarily who aren't hip-hop heads understand is that like like there's the the diversity within the genre is so vast mm. that you can kind of catch a wave that really aligns with like your worldview now from a perspective mm. that you know culturally like like um 
you know, you connect to. And and a lot of my hip hop, a lot of stuff that I love right now is like inspirational. Mm. Um and and I and I and I don't really listen to I don't I guess I don't have a radio. I don't have a TV. Um I haven't seen a music video in a long time. That was like a lot of what I loved growing up. But a lot of people that I get into, it's either like <laughs> it's either like it either is like it inspires me or it's mm-hmm. like hella street and lyrical, mm-hmm. like street lyrical, like um like Freddie Gibbs, right? Or like uh Ron Conway or Benny the Butcher. Those are the kind of people that's I'm listening to a lot of that right now. Kind of jazzy, you know. I'm not giving you my top five. I'm just saying, like, I know how hard that is of a question to answer. But for a minute, it was like Nipsey Hustle. I guess all I listened to it was Nipsey Hustle because mm. the emphasis on black economic development and ownership was like mm-hmm. where my where my heart was, you know. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, man. Uh, thank you for attempting to do that. You know, you did a great job. <laughs> I'm not gonna say this is top five, brother, because I mean, my catalog is long, man. It's uh-huh. Long. Long, yeah. Long. Anyways, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm I'm excited. I, I I appreciate you doing this. Um, you are a person that I definitely plan to stay in community with and connected to, no matter how my career ebbs and flows. And someone who I want to see continue to succeed. You know, I appreciate what you represent, and I also appreciate the ways you showed up for my family. You know, mm. when when I had my my cousin there. And I, and I know a lot of families appreciate you for, you for that also. We talked a lot about systemic issues, but people rely on you on a, in, a, in an annual, daily, annual way, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that, um, that presence uh, needs to be, I think, celebrated and, and honored and, and, and appreciated, you know? So thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your hey, work. Man. No doubt, man. I appreciate it. Um, like I said, it's somebody, somebody did it for us or should have did it for us, you know? So we're just paying it back and paying it forward because we're going to need somebody that's going to, our kids is going to be in some school somewhere. We're going to need some people to be doing the right thing then too, right? Um, so yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, all that informs how we show up, right? Absolutely. Peace, peace. And thank you for listening to another episode of Cook on Monday Morning. At Cook on Monday Morning, we believe that if you own Monday morning, you can own the week. If you own the week, you can own the year. And if you change your year, you can change your life. It was so much fun talking to the to the good brother, Mr. Joe Truss. He's principal at a local San Francisco middle school and uh, has been touching and improving the lives of families on the southeast side of the city uh, his entire career, all over the city. But, you know, since especially since he's been on the southeast side of the city, he's uh, worked with several of the youth in my family and uh <laughs> and he deserves to be committed based on that alone um people like mr truss uh they are outstanding and they actually um are in great supply in the city of san francisco we have incredible educators we have incredible education leaders from all walks of life committing themselves each and every day to the young people in our public schools i appreciate him for taking the time to share his story, to share his passion, to um, elevate the the work around anti-racist teaching that he's been building a community around here and all over the country and all over the world. Uh, please support that brother by following him on Twitter. I will put his Twitter handle on the screen so you can make sure you catch it. Check out 
uh, you know, the upcoming trainings that he has. I'm sure he'll be announcing them soon. And um, thank you for listening to another episode. You know, uh, as you know, since the pandemic has started, we've changed the title of the series to call it Cook on Quarantine. And we're releasing episodes three times a week. So thank you for being on this journey with me, for continuing to listen and subscribe. Uh, please like, share, and subscribe this podcast. If you know people in education that you think would benefit from hearing from, from Joe, uh, share it or any of the past episodes that we've had. We've been you know, on a marathon just steadily putting out uh, the stories of really incredible people that make up our city and our country. And so um, I'd like to thank all of them for being a part of this journey of building this podcast. Uh, as you know, the Cook on Monday Morning concept and product is uh, owned by the Luther Harris Holding Company. I named my company the Luther Harris Holding Company after my great-grandfather, and he represents a legacy of ownership and uh, building up yourself and, and improving your community. And so I wanted to des- I wanted to design my business around those values at the Luther Harris Holding Company. Uh, my primary work is as a strategic advisor. I work with nonprofits and companies to help them meet their strategic goals. Uh, we do a number of different things together, and all of that work has been really uplifting and fun. Thank you uh, to all of the people that have reached out to me because of the podcast uh, to start work with them. My plate is filling up fast, and that is a beautiful thing. Um, you know, it's 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 a beautiful thing, but it's still, uh, you know, in a place where I'm not obviously making tons of bucks and the city of San Francisco is an expensive place to live in, but I really enjoyed the work and um, I appreciate everybody that's, you know, reached out to me. If you're interested in talking more about what I do as a strategic advisor, feel free to reach out to me. My email is info at Stephon Cook. Um, if you're interested in supporting the podcast, beyond liking and sharing and subscribing it. You can also uh, purchase all the merchandise we have coming out. Uh, We have a number of things that we're going to be releasing very, very soon. And uh, you can be the first to see and purchase the merchandise uh, by subscribing to my newsletter, which you can do on my website, stevonkick.com. There are also a number of book recommendations that I have. I have a books page, uh, just like various book recommendations. So you can check those out at Stephon Cook. You know, bookmark that page. And before you do any shopping, just go through that bookmark before you do any of your Amazon shopping. That's a great way to support the podcast. Uh, There's no additional cost to whatever you're purchasing. And it gives a little kickback to the to the podcast and it allows me to keep continue to cover the cost of what we do here. Uh, I'd like to thank David Topete for all of the great work he does to um, edit and uh, get the podcast out in a timely manner. All the people love the podcast because it, their production value <laughs> and all that is because of David. So David, I appreciate you. The person who edits my podcast or my newsletter Whenever we release a newsletter, the person that edits that is Fernando Cinco Marquez. When I do a blog, he's my main copy editor. Uh, he's been a longtime friend. I, I appreciate you, Nando. Thank you for all the work that you do to support the podcast. Um, and, you know, this podcast was really a statement of love. Uh, 
to the people that help San Francisco stay moving, the people that do the work thanklessly, our heroes, our lifesavers, our our teachers, our school lunch workers, our custodians, our uh, police and firefighters, our EMT workers, the people that drive our buses, our muni buses like my dad, the people that clean our streets, all of our blue collar workers, and um, the people that keep us safe. Uh, like I mentioned, our our first responders, but also our so- social workers and uh, the folks that are coming to our city to help create jobs, our employers. This podcast is also for you. And it's for those gig workers. I've been especially elevating our gig workers, our people that deliver food. They are uh, transporting folks to and fro, exposing themselves to this vicious virus. They're incredibly essential. This podcast is for you. I've been trying to do something special with the podcast by... uh, putting the word out that I wanted to take a deserving, all single mothers are deserving, but I want to show one uh, or two a month that I appreciate them by covering dinner for them, maybe covering childcare. I love to uh, do that for, you know, one of the many hardworking, committed parents that are doing it on their own. I just want to show you that you're appreciated and that uh, your sacrifice is not going unseen. So if you know any single mothers that could use a night out to themselves, send me an email, info at steveoncook.com. Tell me their name. Tell me a little bit about them. It doesn't have to be especially long. Tell me a way to get a hold of them. Um, you can also reach out to me on my social media. I'm on LinkedIn at Steve on Cook, Twitter at Steve on Cook, Instagram at Steve on Cook. That's something I'm really excited about doing. So hopefully I could an opportunity to, to do more of it. So we have a number of exciting guests coming up in the coming week. Uh, we have a number of people that have served in high level uh, political offices, people that are military veterans, uh, folks that are really inspiring. Um, I, had, I have this idea of doing a book club. I've, I've been reaching out to some of my friends from college that are now professors. And, um, you know, we're, we're sort of talking about doing a, a, new, a new addition to the podcast that involves a really thoughtful discussion on some classic texts that come from Black authors. And so hopefully if that all comes together, I'll be able to share it with you soon. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the episode with Mark DeVito, but if you're looking on YouTube, you can see that I'm wearing the hat for Standard Deviant. Obviously, folks that know me know I don't drink. But Mark uh, is a great dude, and um, he, he he's built a great brand. So support Standard Deviant Brewing. <laughs> doing doing your as you as you do your your quarantine sipping, um, and yeah, you know I just I just want to thank you again. I appreciate you, and until we talk once more, peace, peace, and we out. <laughs>